0: announce a couple of items today the first one is that we have now officially closed on our building so it has been sold which is um i guess good we love being there and all that we shared together there but we're now moving on to a new chapter and uh, we're glad to have that work completed at the end of the service today we will be celebrating the lord's supper together all right let's begin i'd like you now to turn to the gospel of john chapter six Starting in verse 22 this morning. John chapter 6, verse 22. And we will get started. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into that boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There had come other small boats from Tiberias, near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, "Rabbi, when did you get here?" Jesus answered them and he said, "Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life which the son of man will give him the father. God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work that you believe in him whom he has sent." Last week we witnessed the second miracle that John records here in Six. And if you recall, that was Jesus walking on the sea. Again, I would ask that if you are on Skype, that you would please mute your microphone because we are recording. Thank you. Last week, again, we witnessed the second miracle that Jesus records in chapter six, and that was Jesus walking on the sea. Earlier, we had seen at the beginning of chapter six, the first miracle of the chapter, which was Jesus feeding the five thousand. Now, today, we're going to enter the second phase of chapter six. There was the miracle phase. And now there's what we call the discourse or the teaching or really in chapter six, the dialogue as well between Jesus and the people. So we're going to see that. So what's going to happen now is that Jesus is going to give an extended dialogue, extended discourse to the people and the leaders in Capernaum. Once again, the leaders are highlighted as a separate group, and the people and the leaders are both going to be taught, and there's going to be discussion at certain times back and forth. At the beginning of this discourse, at the end, and a couple of times in between. Now, as part of this, Jesus is going to give controversial teaching, very controversial teaching about who he is, his identity, and why he came, his mission. And we'll see that. We'll see that beginning today, but especially in the next couple of weeks. Now, the starting point for this teaching is the failure of the people, the failure of the people to understand the meaning behind the miracle of feeding the 5,000 men and women and children on top of that. They saw the miracle. They realized it was a miracle, but they failed to grasp the meaning behind it. Remember, a sign is a miracle with a meaning. You can see the miracle. But if you, if you don't believe and realize the meaning behind it, what it points to, who it points to, then you've missed that it. it really hasn't been a sign for you. It's, it's been a miracle. Okay? It's, it's a wow factor. But there's no, no recognition of what that miracle means, who it's pointing to. And that was their problem. And that is why Jesus is going to launch into the discourse, the teaching, the dialogue that he's going to, we're going to see him start today. Now, I was going to, as usual, in this particular case, there are as many different outlines of this section of chapter 6 as there are expositors of this section of chapter 6. In other words, nobody can agree on the outline. And when I see something like that, I say, well, I'm not going to add to the confusion. All I'm going to say is that here's the point. What you need to know about this section is that as we move... Every single teaching that he gives, every answer that he gives drives towards one big thing, and that is this, that Jesus is the bread of life for the life of the world. Whoever believes in him eats this bread, in other words, receives eternal life. Again, all of this is leading. This is very similar to what we saw in chapter four with the woman at the well where he had a conversation with her, but the whole, he was driving her towards something with the whole conversation. And at one thing in her case for her to realize that he's the Messiah. If you remember, we're going to see the same thing here in Capernaum. Now he's dealing not with Samaritans any longer, but with Jewish people in Galilee, but we're going to see the exact same um, purpose and method for Jesus. But this time he's going to use the, the, the image OK, of the bread, because that's what he used to feed the five thousand. But he, he realized they missed. They totally missed that. So what he's going to do. He's going to start with bread and then he's going to move. He's going to move to the bread of life generically. And then he's going to keep moving. And as we see, he keeps moving. He, he's good. What you're going to see is Jesus himself replacing the bread. And he's now finally going to get people to focus, hopefully on who he is the 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 maker of the miracle the giver of the bread and so forth now this message that jesus is the bread of life that he's going to give his life for the life of the world and that whoever believes in him in this case eating his bread eating this bread is what the meaning of that is to believe in him receives eternal life now that should sound familiar by now because that's the message of the entire you may that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So you might ask the question, since the message is beyond the usefulness of having it repeated, what else is going on in the Gospel of John? Why do we have 12 chapters of, of him confronting the Jewish people and the Samaritans, and then going on from there with a, with a, the a teaching of his And then we, of course, have the the, the focus, the focal point, which is his death and resurrection. But why do we have chapters uh, 2 through 12 where again and again and again, the point of it all is to realize who Jesus is and what he's doing? Well, the answer is that while the message is simple, what's going on here is what's difficult is having to confront the ignorance the blindness and the darkness of the men of the world of unbelievers and that's a tall order Um, the unbelieving world is ignorant they're blind and there's total darkness jesus had used that image already he says men prefer the darkness i am the light that comes into the world but men have preferred the darkness well that's a big problem and so jesus again and again and again is trying to rescue people first from their ignorance they don't know from their blindness, they don't see, and their darkness, they don't want to see. That's why we have chapter after chapter, the ending of which is always, this is who Jesus is. This is no different. In fact, I want you to see, even though we're only going to get to verse 29 today, I want you to see the course, the progress, how that, how this moves closer and closer to the main point. Now, the main point here is not only who he is But what he's going to do, his mission. So we're going to see how does that work, and I'm just going to go through this so that you get the sense of that progression. We're going to go back and look at this one step at a time, one stage at a time. First of all, physical bread. When he fed the five thousand, that was full bread that they ate, and it nourished their body. So he started there, just like he started with the water in the Jacob's well with the Samaritan woman. But then he moves on to heavenly bread. He's going to say, look, we saw this in today's passage. Don't work for the food that perishes, but work for the, for the food that endures to eternal life. The food from heaven that the Father will give to you. Then it moves to bread for eternal life. So there's heavenly bread. And then now he's moving and he's saying this bread is for eternal life. Now, I want you to think about being the person in that audience in that crowd and hear him do that they were there he's already pointed out they were there for the physical bread we're going to see why as we as we progress in the message today but that's what they were there for that's where they came back to him right maybe maybe they wanted to see another miracle maybe they wanted to be fed but that's where it ended it ended in the physical material this world this earth so the first thing he has to do is move them off that and and have them realize that there is a heavenly bread that that you want, that you really want. And then he says that that bread is for eternal life. Now, that was, that was a, that would be a marvelous, striking, maybe challenging thing to anybody today. If you said, okay, here we have bread, but really what you want to have is the heavenly bread. Even that would cause people to say, what does that mean? Now, the Jews had an illustration of that and an advantage because in, in the wilderness with Moses, the Lord fed them with heavenly bread or at least bread from heaven okay but then to move on and say that bread that we're talk- talking about now so far when you're thinking about bread you're thinking about the feeding of the five thousand that was bread that nourished them for a day and maybe and they're going to actually talk about the fact that this is reminiscent of moses in the wilderness where he fed the people with manna by the way he fed more people you might say well that's a problem because jesus is greater than moses yeah, but forget about the numbers. Forget about any of that because it's who he is that matters. So they may they may say, "Well, we we understand heavenly bread, the manna. But what's this about eternal life? Because the bread that we have thought about, while it may have come from heaven, we had to get it every day and it sustained our physical life for a while because most of them actually ended up dying in that wilderness. That bread, the manna was not for eternal, life, okay? So this is this is a, like a mind blowing statement already for them to hear. But he continues. Now he moves. that Then he moves to say, it's not a thing. It's me. I am the bread of life. Christ is the bread of life. Again, another mind blowing thing. If you think about. It about it in the whole experience they had seen moses feed the people with bread from heaven but now jesus who performed the miracle is now as it were ratcheting things up getting your eyes higher and higher to realize that this person that is speaking to you is the bread of life that comes from heaven that the father has sent into the world and he doesn't stop there he keeps moving this keeps building. He keeps trying to raise their awareness of who he really is and why he's here, that his, he is going to offer his flesh for the life of the world. Now, at this point, they must have been really blown away. And we know they were because a lot of them said, this is a hard saying. I can't accept it because he was doing this. He was stepping up and up. He was never content to just leave them where a place where they were comfortable he wanted that he wanted them to be uncomfortable, to be, as it were, shocked so that they would get their minds off the physical onto the spiritual. And even then from there onto this person in front of them, who's the and that he will offer his flesh for the life of the world. In other words, he will die for the life of the world. This, he's the bread of life. and yet He's going to die for the life of the world. And he's not done yet because the most, as it were, shocking statement of all is that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood to have life. Now, you can imagine that if they were hearing that, if it followed him this far, when he said this, it was a bridge too far. They were totally in revolt, as it were, once he had said this. How can a man give us his flesh to eat? How can a man give us his blood to drink? It was in a way it was you know, almost gruesome. And if you think about it physically, which is where they, they still were, right They were totally off base. They weren't thinking at all about the fact that he's teaching something about who he is as the Son of God and what he's going to accomplish his death on the cross, he, they have no idea about that. They're still on how can we eat his physical flesh and drink his physical blood? When, as we know, that's not at all what he was talking about. And he's ratcheting it up and making it, as it were, more and more outlandish so that they will realize, you know what? He's not talking at all about the level we're at. He's trying to get us to wake up and he's going to use whatever he has to to wake us up. He did something similar with the the Samaritan woman. When remember, we saw everything that he he said to her was a surprise. So there's a parallel here. And then finally. And throughout this the issue is a confrontation Jesus is confronting them he's saying don't come for the bread that perishes this isn't just about miracles this is different from the manna he says I ask you to believe in me I'm challenging you with every stage I move through believe in me believe in who I am I'm the Messiah I'm the Son of God the Father of God has sent me from heaven to die for the sins of the world and And again, asking them again and again, and every time he's ratcheting things up, more and more audacious statements, bold statements, even scandalous statements of his words. Again, not not because he he wants to, you know, just rile them up, but because he wants them to open their eyes. Okay, let's continue reading now or go back and read and start in verse 22 of chapter six. John, chapter six, verse twenty two. The next day, this is the day after okay, Jesus walked on water, which they didn't know about. The next day, the crowd stood on the other day that there was no other boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into that boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias. And they came near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get? Here? Now, I want, you, I want to orient you to a couple of the places that John mentions. The first one is Tiberius. At the time, Tiberius was the capital of the region of he was he was what they call the Tetrarch. You don't have to worry about that. It was it was uh, Herod Antipas was in was in charge. Tiberius was the capital, okay? Just like Washington DC is the capital of the United States. So that's one thing. These boats came from Tiberias, and that makes sense in a way, because if you think about it, most of the action, I mean, remember, these boats were, were enterprises. People use these boats as their way of life, as their as their job. They would go to places, pick people up, kind of like Uber today, right? They would pick people up, where are you going? I'll take you there for such and such a price. And it makes sense that the capital would be where they start, because that's where the most people are, and that's where people are moving in and out of and so forth. So that makes sense. Now, Verse 23. Oh, by the way, I'll show this in a map in a minute, but Tiberius was on the southwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to show you the map, but basically they're going from the they're going to go now from the northeast. I'm sorry, from the southwest to the northeast, because that's where Jesus performed the miracle. OK, verse 23, if you notice, there came other small boats from Tiberius near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. It, it, it kind of answers the question. It would otherwise arise the question, how did this crowd get across by boat when there were no boats, but the one disciples had taken out? And so they have, in order to answer that question, he talks about the boats from Tiberius. It's really not important other than to explain things so people don't get stuck. Okay. Whether they came from Tiberias, whether they, whether they were already there, whether they came from, you know, somewhere else, doesn't matter. All right. What matters is that they were, they were in hot pursuit of the Lord. They were, they were kind of woke up and said, Where is he? Where is he gone? Maybe they were thinking, We want another miracle. Maybe they were thinking, We're hungry. All right? Whatever it was. Maybe we were thinking, Maybe we could still force him to be our king. I mean, this is what was on their mind. Very earthly approach to things. Needs, their own needs on an earthly, an earthly level. So now, verse 23 again tells us where these boats had come from. Tiberius. From Tiberias in the southwest to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, near where the miracle had occurred. And then we have Capernaum. At this point in time, Capernaum was the hometown of Jesus and his family. I don't know if you remember, but we won't go there. But in chapter two, after he performed his first miracle of turning water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana, He then proceeded to Capernaum with his mothers and brothers and his disciples because that's where he was setting up his hometown. That's where his family remained. Not only that, but it was also the hub, the central point of his ministry in Galilee. When we see Jesus in Galilee, he would, he and his, you know, or his disciples would be in Capernaum. They move out somewhere. They come back to Capernaum. That's what I mean by a hub for his ministry in Galilee. So you think about about that, and he realized. Well, that's why they headed to because they knew. Remember, they had. I don't want to confuse you, but they had gone from. Actually, let me give you a map. All right, can you see that? All right. I know. Okay, so let me give you a map, just so you know why I'm saying what I'm saying. Okay, so they were. They started this. Jesus was. Prefer- All kinds of miracles, particularly miracles of healing in this this whole region. We went to Matthew, Mark to see that because John doesn't record that. But it sets up. You need that context to really understand why these people following him? And so so then remember, he had tried to escape the crowd and get over there. But they came by land and followed him all the way here. And this is where, again, in the northeast shore On the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is what they this is where they were. This is where Jesus remember went to the to the high country and told his disciples to go away. And then the crowd wakes up and finds out, wait a minute, nobody's here. Where'd they all go? Case tiberias Remember, I said it was in the southwest. You see that from northeast to south. So these boats are coming on and they're coming up here. And now that they have boats, they're ready to go. And the question is, where should we go? And the answer is, where do you think Jesus is? And they said, well, his, his hometown and his hub is Capernaum. Why don't we start there? And that's why they came across. OK, now what do they, they get here and they they find Jesus and then they ask him a question. And it, it's in verse 25. Look at it again. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get there? Here? When did you get here? I don't know about you, but if I saw him and I, I saw so there was well, there's no boats and here he is, I think I'd ask him the question, how did you get here? But they asked him, when did you get here? Now, you might say, why well, why would they ask that question? And, and the answer is, was that in a way they had a sense that there's another miracle going on here. You see, if he said how, right, he he would have answered it, or they may anticipate him to have answered it with, well, there must have been a boat, another boat. They'll just tell us about But they asked when because they suspected another miracle. And if he got there too soon, right, then they would realize, wow, something miraculous happened. So that's probably why they asked when rather than how. Because clearly they were surprised that he wasn't on the shore. In light of the miracle of, of the preceding day, Perhaps they were more than a little curious as to, you know what, maybe another miracle had occurred. In any event, their question was, is God going to become the springboard for this discourse that Jesus is about to give teaching on the bread from heaven? All right, again, right here is where things turn. Look at verse 26. Now, what question did they ask him? Rabbi, when did you get here? What did Jesus respond in verse 26? Yeah, well, I got here about seven. Huh. No, he didn't. Notice what he said instead. Truly, truly. I remember whenever you hear those words, he's about to say this is something really important. And almost always it's about him. We've seen that already. And he says, truly, truly, truly. I say, you see, in other words, you followed me from Capernaum all the way over to Bethsaida. And now that I left there, you're following me again. And the question is, why? Why? And the answer is, it's not because you saw signs. That's not why you're following me. Again, we're going to see that word signs. And you have to, I'll tell you again what, they, what a sign really is. i mentioned it already. But there's a difference between a sign and a miracle. They saw the miracle. There's no question. Question. They didn't see a sign. Now that's not why they're following him anyway, because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And Jesus understood that. And that's why he understood that. I'm not going to answer their question because that's just going to feed into their desire for another miracle, their desire to be part of something special. Then this would like reinforce the idea that this is the guy we need to draft as our king. And he wanted no part of that. So instead he responds. Not answering their question, but addressing what they were thinking. Because he's omniscient. He knows what they're thinking. But even by the way they were behaving, he knew. He understood that they had the wrong motives. thats He's rebuking him here, right? You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. In other words, wrong motivation. He's rebuking them. You're not coming to find me for the right reasons, for the wrong reasons. And essentially, if you boil it all down, here's the problem. They were all about uh, what, what I can get from Jesus. What do I want? Come, give me some food. We want a king to defeat the Romans. We're going to make you the king and so forth. They were all about what I want and not at all about who he is. When in fact, everything that he does, everything that he says is for the purpose of getting them to open those blind eyes to see who he is. These people hadn't done that at all, okay? Again, they saw the mirror. I mean, how could you miss it? Here we have Jesus as 5,000 men plus women and children in the grass. And then 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 Jesus says, hey, what do we have, right? How are we going to feed these people? And then Andrew comes up and says, there's a little boy here. He's got five loaves and two fish. Now, of course, maybe not everybody heard that. But a lot of people did. I mean, if you in that day and age, this wasn't an amphitheater, you know, where you had distance. They were right there. It was right next to them. So a lot of them, especially if I don't know if you remember this, but they were lined up in the 50s and 100s. That was to make it easy to count, but also to have as many people as possible, as close as possible. So they knew basically that that a miracle had happened. They knew that he gave thanks, which is very interesting. It's very important to understand that really it was the giving of thanks to the father that precipitated the miracle. I'm not, I'm not saying it was magic words and incantations. What I am saying was that he's always about, just as he wants people to know who he is, he's also reflecting or, or sending that glory up to his father. And at that point, that's when the miracle occurred. So they saw all that. They saw the five loaves and two fish and watched in amazement. As that small, paltry amount of food fed thousands of people. I mean, I probably couldn't eat five loaves. I could definitely eat a loaf and two fish, though. So that would be just feeding me would get rid of a lot of it right there. So in other words, they knew there was no possible explanation short of a miracle. They saw that. What's the problem? Again, the problem is that they completely missed the significance of what they had witnessed. The significance of it. You ever, ever meet people in your life that they were with you and something happens that they can't explain, or or you're able to deal with weighty things that they could never deal with? And what do they want to do? Most people, all unbelievers, right? They want to say, Well, there's something special about this guy, and he must have had a great background, he must have had training, he must have seen Tony Robbins and whatever. But they miss the significance of it. You know, you're trying to explain to him, look. Not I, but Christ, you know, and they totally missed that. They're not interested in any significance. They're interested in, wow, look what happened. Same thing here. They totally missed the significance of what they had witnessed. Now, again, let's talk again. And I want to make sure that this is clearly understood as I try to find my mouse. Hey, there it is. You know, we can talk about sign in everyday life you have a stop sign you have the signs of the times you have a sign that you're you're ill hey, there's a lot of we understand the idea of sign it's the indication of something else that's going on there's nothing magic about the stop sign it's just the indication that if you don't stop right now you're probably going to get into an accident does anybody coming the other way there's a meaning behind the sign so much more than is the fact that a sign in the bible is a miracle but even there has a greater meaning. It's pointing to something greater than itself. I mean, a miracle is pretty great at a human level, but there's something even greater that makes this a sign. It's pointing to something much greater than the miracle itself. And this was the problem. Again, they saw the miraculous act, but they failed to grasp what it signified. Notice sign is the first four word letters of signified. They miss what it signified about Jesus. They're not you know, they're not focused at all on who he really is. Again, what I want versus who he is. And that's a, that's a problem with all kinds of people. That, that's a problem not only for unbelievers, by the way, but for believers. A lot of believers stay involved with churches to get what they want, you know, feed my desires. I, I'm lonely and I desire to meet somebody. So I'm going to go to church to meet somebody. Now, there's nothing wrong with meeting somebody. And if you find, you know, a person that's a Christian, that's fantastic. But that shouldn't be your motivation. That should be a blessing from God. But a lot of people come for what can I get out of this? I want, I want to go to the church that has the best uh, entertainment or the best programming for my children or has a Starbucks in the entryway or things like that. And there's all kinds of things like that. Or, or is it going to perform great miracles. Even today, right? We have these false teachers that perform miracles. A lot of people want that. They crave that. For some reason, they're not satisfied with their life, and they want to see a miracle. And again, not just unbelievers, which are clearly that's the case, but also believers. They did not grasp at all what it signified about Jesus. And what does that mean? It had not been a sign to them. So you get confused when he says in verse 26, maybe you get confused. I say do you, you seek me not because you saw signs. And if you think that that, be, that just means miracles, then you would say, well, of course they saw the miracle. What's Jesus? You have to understand that he's saying there's a I want you to see what it signifies about me. And they didn't. They didn't. And not only that, but it stimulated their desires. You see, it's not supposed to stimulate a sign, a biblical sign is supposed to again authenticate who Jesus is. There's a greater reality here. There's a heavenly truth and it's designed to awaken in people a corresponding faith. That was that's the bottom line. That didn't happen with these people. All it did was stimulate their desires. The desire of their flesh, their pride, their hunger, their greed, but not their worship. Not their worship and that's what it's all about. It's all about Getting people to realize that here is the Christ, the promised Messiah. Here is the Son of God. Believe in him and worship. Worship him. If you understand who he is, you're going to be like Moses. and This is holy ground. I'm worshiping. Now, I'm not saying you need to worship to be saved. But I am saying that that's, that's the response rather than saying, oh, good. I got my desires met. It should be, wow, look at who he is. Okay and we'll find uh, there are other places in the gospel of John where people do exactly that. We haven't really seen that yet, but we will. We will. Peter at the end of this chapter is an example of worshiping the Lord. There'll be a blind man in chapter that when Jesus restored his sight and when he when this blind man found Jesus, he worshiped him. Same thing with Thomas. Right? Thomas said, "You know what? Unless I put my hands into his side and my fingers into into the holes in his hands, I will not believe." But when that happened, you see, he saw the miracle. But not only that, but he believed that Jesus is the son of God and worshipped him. That's the end result that Jesus is looking for. All right, let's continue. John chapter 6, verse 27. And here really is the, the key verse this morning. You know, the title of today's message is the food that endures to eternal life. Because that's the key shift that we're going to see today. All right. And what does Jesus say? Do not work for the food which perishes. Now, he's not saying be a lazy bum and live off the government. Right. What he's saying is, is that, okay, what what do you should be desiring? Right. What are you if what are you going to what are you going to put your focus on? right? Is it food which perishes when what you really have available is food which endures to eternal life? Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. He's comparing two kinds of food. One that perishes. If you you even leave bread around your house for more than a couple of weeks, it starts to get green. You ever see that? It gets green and moldy. Right? It perishes. No. But for the food... That endures to eternal life. Again, a shocking statement for these people. It's bringing them out of where they were at. You know, it's it's breaking the mold. They're saying, "What is food that endures to eternal life?" I dare say, if you went to a friend of yours and you were at McDonald's eating lunch, and you could say, "You know what? Don't worry about this food. It's going to perish anyway." But I got food that you should know about that endures to eat eternal life i dare say that any of your unbeliever friends would be looking at you just is like wide-eyed and what's wrong right it's just natural for the unbeliever to be that way notice he goes on though not only is there a food which endures to eternal life which the son of man will give to you again what is that all about focus back on who right it's about who the son of man and notice i'm going to point this out because when we see the next verse, it's really important to understand what Jesus. He said, the son of man will give it to you, give it as a gift. For on him, the father, God has set his sin. Again, Jesus is making a contrast here. And it's between perishable and eternal food. Perishable versus eternal food. And that is just like the contrast we saw in chapter four at Jacob's well. Jesus made the contrast between natural and spiritual water. The only difference was it was about water in chapter four. In chapter, six. But it's the same contrast between that which is earthly, that which is perishing, that which quenches with thirst for a little while versus that which is enduring, that which is, is the stuff of eternal life. And, and, and to make that point a little, I want you to, um, well, again, that, that happened in Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well in chapter 4. And I'd like you to go now to chapter 4. We'll be back in chapter 6. But I'd like you to go to John chapter 4, verses 10 through four. We've already seen this. Hopefully we grasp the meaning. And I want you to see that. Jesus is now essentially making the same contrast. By the way, it's a different group of people, which is why he's going to go further. See, it was the Samaritans, and he got them to believe that he was the Messiah, right? But now, with the Jewish people in Galilee, he's going to bring them all the way to his death on the cross. That's an advance, okay? John chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, Notice if you knew the gift, if you knew the work that you have to do here. Is that what he says? No. If you knew the gift of God, it's a gift. And who it is. See, right there in the first statement is what it's all about. Right. This is what the people now in chapter six on the shores of near Capernaum didn't get. They didn't understand it was a gift, and they didn't understand the issue was who's giving it to you, who's talking to you, who it is who says to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Notice, he didn't say he would have told you that you need to work for a period of time, and then I'll give it to you. What did he say? Ask. Just ask. And he would have given you living water. She still doesn't get it, remember? She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the the earthly, physical, still. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Notice the focal point here was Jacob. In chapter six, we're going to see that the focal point of comparison is going to be Moses. All right. Now, why the difference? I don't know. But Jacob's well... And Jacob, as their father, was the, was what they related to, whereas the Jewish people related to, well, you know what? Moses was the great one in, in our history, and we're going to focus on what he gave us and compare that to what Jesus gave us. But again, in verse 12, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Of course, the answer clearly is yes. But anyway, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. So Jesus knew she still wasn't getting it, right? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. That was undeniable. Then he goes on, though. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him gift shall never thirst. Now, see, she was thinking about living water in terms of water that running. Remember, like a like a river or streams, living water, right? Healthier, whatever. But he's saying, no, you don't get it. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water in him springing to eternal life. Same thing. Right. Do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life. The water that I will give you will become in you a well of water springing up to eternal life. And then 15. And then she worshipped him. Remember this? No. Right. She still is not getting it. Right. And he going to have to he's going to have to bring her along. But here, notice what she says. Give me this water, sir, so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. In other words, she didn't get it. It was hopeful. But she says, I will not be thirsty. Maybe she was finally realizing this was spiritual, but no, to come all the way here to draw. OK, very Parallel. So what's the point well the point is that neither the natural water in jacob's well nor the natural food of loaves and fish can provide eternal life you might say that's pretty obvious wasn't obvious to them but it should be obvious neither the natural water in jacob's well nor the natural food of loaves and fish can provide eternal life well you know you ever hear of the, of the fountain of youth? No, right, you've heard of that, right? What was that point? Let's use some kind of special natural water so that you live for a long, 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 long time. That's not what he's talking about. You know, they have these people that say if you, if you eat the right food, you can live to be 100 years old. That's not what he's talking about. Remember, he's talking about eternal life, way beyond anything that natural food or drink can ever deliver. But beyond that, there's the giver the giver see yes it's it's this is amazing that you can have eternal life just ask and i will give it to you but ultimately the focus should be the giver jesus he's the giver of the water that springs up to eternal life again one more time notice in verse 14 the water that i will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life the the water that i will give. jesus is the giver of the water that springs up to eternal life. That ultimately was the point of it all, right? This I am I, The Messiah, when he comes, he will show us all things. I am the Messiah. In chapter 6, in our passage today, Jesus is also the one who gives the food that endures to eternal life. I'd like you to go back to John chapter 6, verse 27 one more time so that we see this. John chapter 6, verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Now here in John 27, there's one additional thing that that shows you clearly that he's talking about focus on me. Jesus is saying that God has set his seal of approval on him. For what? Well, he has appointed him as his authorized agent, if you want to put it that way, to bestow life-giving food. So he's saying, again, he said this already, if you don't just believe my testimony on my say-so, but ultimately it's what the Father testifies about me. It's the fact that he has put his seal on me which should really cause you To just realize and believe that I do have the bread of eternal life. And as we're going to see as we go along. We're not going to see it today. Jesus will identify that food ever more closely with his person and his work. That's where we're headed. All right, Look at John 6, 28 now. John 6, 28. Now remember, what did he just say? He said... Don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Give to you. What was their response? Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do? This is the big stumbling stone. It was the stumbling stone for the Jews. I'm going to do something. I'm going to work for it. I'm going to have religious practices that will have favor with God. And then I will have eternal life because of what I do. Right. Again, religion never goes away. And I dare say that probably. Ninety five percent of the people in this world think it's about what they do, what they do. If I do the right things, I'll get there. Okay, there being heaven, nirvana, whatever you want to call it. Okay, that's not what it's all about. Again, therefore, they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? I want you to notice, again, the focus is on them, not Jesus, and and that they actually think they can work the works of God. And I want you to notice that, again, they have this picture. We can do it. And it's a lot of stuff. Right. Well, what does Jesus say? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the the work. It's singular. There's one thing. Jesus is all about, God's all about that. You know, humanity, the flesh, the world is all about making things complicated, complex. Jesus, God, is all about helping us understand that it's simple. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. The simplicity of devotion to christ always so that he changes the word works to the singular there's one thing the work of god and what is that that you believe in him whom he has sent now you might have thought they would rejoice in that i mean i mean you should we rejoice in that right but if you're on the level of of human nature you're not going to rejoice in that first of all human nature is not to believe Right. But human nature is to say it's me. It's what I do that counts. OK. This is the singular work of God that you believe in him. He has sent. So in verse 28, we've seen this again and again already. We'll continue to run into it. Another complete misunderstanding. Jesus told them to work for the food which endures to eternal life. He clearly was contrasting the food which endures to eternal life to the food which perishes that at this point did they absorb that were they like oh i get it not at all what did they do they ignored the message the comparison and they went right for the word work that's all they heard oh good now we're talking there's some works that we can do let's get into it forgetting about food that endures to eternal life no they went right for the word work now you know In their defense, right? They they because they were on this level of physicality, everyday living of all they could think about, all they really understood was that you know what, every day I get up and and I work and I work for food, but it doesn't go right, and that's the same thing now, right? One of the one of the expressions for. Earning a living is uh, putting food on the table. It's the same thing in the natural realm. Okay. So they were thinking, well, well, I'm working for my daily bread. I have to. So clearly, I got to work for this even more stupendous, amazing bread. So they wanted to know, what do we need to do to purchase the food which endures to eternal life that's what they thought they had to do i got to earn it what do i have to do so that i earn enough to purchase the food which endures to eternal life what's really naive and misguided is the fact that they thought they could actually accomplish that work when jesus there was a time when, when a rich young man went to jesus and said to him the same question all right, what do I have to do? He may not. But that's one of the questions that he gets also. And he said to them, well, have you kept the commandments? And he said, I've kept them from my youth. Kind of arrogant. Same thing here. We can do these works of God. But then Jesus pointed out that's impossible. And the way he did it was to say, all right, here you go. Sell everything you have and follow me. You see, now naturally speaking to a rich young man, that was an impossibility. It's not going to happen. Okay. But not only that, they they wanted to work, but they had the audacity to think they could accomplish whatever works that God requires we're going to be able to do. Let me ask you something, though. What is the one work that was required to provide the food that endures to eternal life? Well, no, 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 the provider now. In other words, what work did Jesus have to do? They're saying we can work the works of God. We can we can do ourselves what's needed to have eternal life. Well, what was needed? And the answer is that Jesus had to die on the, the, the cross. Do you think that day that they were willing to do that work? No. They had no idea, and if you think about it, it's kind of arrogant to think, you know what, God? I don't know what you're going to tell me, but whatever it is, I know I can do. Watch out if you have that thought. There's a lot of Christians that have that thought. There's a whole realm of Christianity that says you can by your works get to a place of sinless perfection, or of what they call full sanctification, or anything you want to put on. And it's all about them, their practices, their works, their good deeds, and they can. Get to somewhere on their own. Be careful when you have that thought. I know whatever God asks, I'm gonna do. If that's true, why then you don't need a savior, do you? And not only that, but the only way that can ever happen is with the Spirit and the Word of God. Okay. They were totally so the other thing though, and this is the whole point about how misguided they were, when they totally ignored Jesus when he told them this Is a gift. A gift. Now a gift isn't a gift. If you have to work for it. All right, We all know that. They should have known that too. They should have been again. Excited. Here's this bread. That endures to eternal life. You don't do works for it. It's a gift. The food which endures. To eternal life. Which the son of man will give to you. And what's, when you have somebody giving it to you, what's the only necessary thing? To believe the giver of the gift, right? If you don't do that, you're never going to have the gift, are you? In other words, not because he... You know, it's not like saying, okay, you need to believe and then I'll give you the gift. That's not what's going on at all. It's like you you can't you can't receive the gift without believing, right? In other words, if you don't believe that he's the giver of the gift, you will never... Let him give you the gift. Does that make sense? Maybe it doesn't. But my, if you think about it in an analogy, someone says, you know what? I want to give you fifty thousand dollars. You clearly don't believe in him that he's going to do that. So you walk away. Right. You're like, that's ridiculous. I don't want anything to do with that. So you, you got to believe in the giver of the gift. That's all you have to do because it's a gift. That's the only necessary thing. And so Jesus now is going to hit him with the facts in chapter 6 verse 29. Notice Jesus answered and said to them, "This is the work of God, one thing that you believe in him, whom He has sent, whom God has sent. What God requires is faith. here believing in the one God sent." And that idea of Jesus as the one whom God sent. It turns out that that's a major, major theme in John's Gospel. We've already seen it. Believe me, we're going to continue to see it. Over and over again, Jesus will identify who he is as the one whom God the Father has sent. Well, why did the Father send the Son? Well, one reason is he sends the Son into the world to save the world. That's the one whom God has sent to save the world. How? By giving his life for the life of the world. John 3 sixteen to seventeen check it out John chapter three verse sixteen to seventeen for God so loved the world you see by understanding that Jesus is the one that God sent you realize and believe that he loves he loves the whole world why else would he send his only son down here to die for us because he loves us but God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life see the same thing perishable eternal this is the exact same thing with us right we will either perish or have eternal life and the basis is believing in the one whom god sent verse 17 for god did not send the son into the world but god sent his son jesus is the one whom the father has sent why well, definitely not to judge the world as so many things that's why people stay away from Christianity because because they don't even get to try to think about who what Jesus is doing because they have to all have to look at people that are, they say that, that they're Christians and come join us and all they're doing is judging people right I mean it's a, at least let me put it this way at least the public face all right and it's so distorted, obviously, face of is that, well, they're better than we are. They're going to judge us for what we want. I don't really want to be around people like that. Right. So 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 that they need to understand John 3:17. God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That is the one that God sent. Not only that, but Jesus says that his food, he's talking about food that he's going to give to them for eternal life. But then he talks about his food. Again, in chapter four, he says, food is to do the will of the one who's looking, John 4.34. We've been in chapter four a lot today. One more time. Look at John 4.34. This is when, remember, the disciples were coming back from the city of Sychar. They had been on a mission to get food. They were bringing food back. And they noticed Jesus hadn't eaten. And they said to him, eat, please eat. And he says, I have food you don't know about. They had a the big misunderstanding, right? They, too, were only thinking about food that goes into the belly. And he, of course, wasn't at all. Look at John 434. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's his side. As his. In other words, the one who is working, OK, is Jesus and God's working through him. That's where all of the work, as we think about it, under, is, is happening on our side. Simply believe his food was to do the will of the one who sent him. OK, back to John 6:29, and we'll we'll wrap this up this morning. Well, in just a moment, we're going to have a couple of passages from Paul's letters. To make the connection, John six twenty nine. By the way, in large part, the Gospel of John also serves to make to, to, tr- to transition from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who are primarily talking about the kingdom of God for the Jewish people. A uh, transition occurs. John is right doing the transition. You can see it move in his gospel, and then by the time you get to Paul. We are now at a place where there's the church. It's no longer about the Jews only; about Jews and Gentiles. It's no it's no longer about the the the, the, phys, the physical kingdom on earth, but this, this, the heavenly issues. Okay. Anyway, anyway, look at John six one more time. Jesus answered and said to them, "This is the work singular of God." And when it says the work of God, it means the work that God requires. Okay this is the work of god that you believe in him whom he has sent the work of god and here's where we make the transition okay because you may have been thinking already today wait we're talking about works and we're talking about believing and they're like opposites and and you know that you see that here but where it really comes out is in the letters of paul, paul tell us over and over again that the work of god faith in christ is diametrically opposed what Paul calls the works of the law, which was clearly in the mind of the Jewish people. You know, they were thinking, let's think about the works that are in the law. It's got to be there. At least start there. Right. And Paul's message over and over again is, is that you are justified by faith, not by the works of the law. So we see this. We see that comes into full flower. This, I'd like, I'd like you to see it now. Go to Romans chapter three, verse 28. Romans three twenty-eight. As we draw this to a close today. Jesus said. This is the work of God. That you believe in him. Who he has sent. Romans 3.28. Virtually the same statement. Romans 3.28. For we maintain. That a man. Is justified by faith. Apart the works of the law. Again, Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Paul comes and says, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. God declares you righteous, not by the works of the law, but by believing in Christ. Just like the only work that's required to eat the food that endures to eternal life, the same thing, believe in the Son of Man. Believe in the Giver of the. Throughout all of this, throughout chapter six, Jesus is consumed with reaching one goal for his people—just one—and that's this: to see that in his coming and work, all right, they're gonna, they right—they're going to—he they, has come. Whether they—they they don't know, maybe they don't believe who he is, but he has definitely come. There's no denying it. He wants them to see that in his coming and in his work. work God has brought salvation to all people. It's only in John where the conversation moves to the sins of the world, the savior of the world, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, that transition from a focus on the Jewish people only to the whole world, Jew and Gentile. In, in Jesus' coming and work, God has brought salvation to all people. And finally, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Go forward to 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 18. Marvelous passage. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. We're not going to see all that today. Marvelous. Absolutely marvelous. Clears up so much about the gospel, for example. Look at John Five, eighteen. Now, all these things are from God. That's what that's what the, the Jews in Galilee didn't get yet. It's all from God. What happened? He reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, what? That God was in Christ, reconciling who? The world to himself. And then further, not counting their trespasses against them. And has committed to us that word of reconciliation. And when we bring that word to people, if we're understanding the message from God, do we count their trespasses against them? How could we? God didn't. Notice again, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The reason why... As we have the message of reconciliation to people that are alive, that he's not counting the trespasses against them is because if they believe in Christ, they'll never be. In other words, if he's counting the trespasses against them and saying this is on you, and he's saying, no, it's not as long as you believe in Christ. It'll never be an issue as far as uh, an issue as far as the east is from the west. So far have I put your transgressions away from you not counting the trespasses against them, he has committed to us a word of reconciliation. And that's a great ending point for the Lord's Supper, and we're going to see more and more of this as we continue listening to Jesus in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. All right, let's close this portion with a prayer. Heavenly Father, help us to see once again how awesome. Your plan is how awesome your son is how complete his work on the cross really is how marvelous your grace and your love that you would not count our trespasses against us at all that all all your work through christ is to reconcile and help us to understand that that's you have given us this amazing ministry us ourselves to help people understand that through christ you are reconciling the world to yourself, whosoever believes. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, you know, back at the old building, I would now say, okay, ushers, please pass out the communion elements. Well, we don't need to do that, right? Because they've already been passed out, thanks to uh, Margie and Mark this morning. So... All right, so we do our own preparation, right, on the gifts, just making sure that it doesn't spill. Well, Lord's Supper. Now, when we gather together, we do have bread and the cup, and we do eat and drink it. But I dare say that the Lord's Supper is not only about what we put into our mouths, during this celebration, in fact, it's not even primarily about what we put into our mouths during the celebration. You see, again, that's the natural realm, and that's fine. But it's not just about that. It's not just about that. That's what—that's where the Catholics go. toward. they somehow—it's this cup and this bread—is now the, the body and blood of Christ, and it totally isn't. It totally isn't. Right? You're missing the point completely. Now, we have talking about the Samaritans today a bit. And, and one other thing that Jesus told the Samaritan woman was this. The Father, God the Father, seeks true worshipers. And who are the true worshipers? They are the ones who worship in spirit and in truth. That's what's primary about the Lord's Supper, is that we would worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, that we have our minds opened by the Spirit to the truth about what he's done, okay, but just like the crowd on the shore there are times we can sometimes see the actions in the Lord's Supper after all they're repeated they're obvious we can see one another taking in the elements we can do that but we sometimes can miss out on the and that's a shame we should never miss out on the meaning you know as far as God is concerned we truly eat and drink the bread and the cup when we grasp the meaning the meaning behind the lord's supper when we believe the words of the lord about the lord's supper we believe that 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 through the spirit and truth that the words of the lord are spirit and life so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to listen to the words of Paul, paul and luke and matthew as each describes the lord's supper all right, so we, we normally at the end go to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, but today I'm going to lead off with that, okay? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said... This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now we're not ready to take the elements yet, okay? Just so you know. But this is normally what we look at. This is my body which is for you. That's the message. His body is for us. What does that mean? It means that he will give his life for the life that he died for each of us. That's his body was for us. Do this in remembrance of me. What's that mean? Remember that I, that's the, that's the meaning behind the bread and the Lord's supper. And then he goes on, he says, in the same way, he t- took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. That's the meaning of the cup, that, that a new covenant was inaugurated when Jesus shed his blood on the cross. That's the meaning of it. I make all things new. All all things have passed. New things have come. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You see, it's not about the elements. Ultimately, it's about him. It's about remembering what he has done. And then verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim what? The Lord's death. The Lord's death until he comes. That's the focus of the Lord's Supper. Completely. He gave his body for us. He shed his blood. For this new covenant, he's we're proclaiming his death. Eating again, eating the bread signifies our faith that Jesus gave his body for us. So we hear the message, we remember it, and then what we're doing by eating the bread is is believing <laughs> once again that he died for us. His body is for you and me. Drinking the cup.